This is a bit of a complicated scripture. It's two stories, actually, one after the other. The first is a story about Jesus discussing the brutality of Pilate with a crowd. He's been teaching. Some in the crowd tell him that Pilate has killed a number of Galileans, and Jesus responds by asking whether they think that these people who were massacred were any worse sinners than those who escaped death. Or, he goes on, what about the people, 18 of them, who were killed by accident when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Did they deserve it? In other words, does death only come to those who are the worst kind of sinners? Is there a correlation between sin and suffering? Or are we all vulnerable as well as guilty? Jesus answers his own questions. He tells the crowd that they are no better than these victims of violence or accident. No, he tells them, you are no different. Unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. It doesn't feel like there's any good news here. People die, people are killed, and as it happens to others, it might be tempting to say, well, that won't happen to me because I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not the sinner they are. Or more likely, we would say something like this, that won't happen to me because I'm not as stupid as that person or short-sighted as them. And you know this temptation of denial and attempted avoidance is true. You know it's true that we declare ourselves deservedly immune to destruction and even death because as we think about something like the situation in Ukraine, for example, first off we say to ourselves, well, that could never happen here. And then secondarily, as we hear news or watch images of people who are trapped in cities being shelled or bombed, we may think to ourselves, why didn't they get out while they still could? If it was me, I would have fled in plenty of time. But you know what? You don't know what you would do if you were in that situation. After all, how do you make the right decision, the life-saving decision, when you don't have any idea what's going to happen or where to go or who will help you? It seems that Jesus is reminding his listeners not to judge those who have died because you yourself are no different. Everyone, he contends, is vulnerable to destruction. But just as true, he contends, everyone needs to get their life back on track. That's the first part of the scripture, kind of softening people up to realize that judging others their decisions, their vulnerabilities, even their death, doesn't really work because we're all living at the edge of the cliff, a cliff of vulnerability and responsibility. The second part of this morning's scripture text, then, is the parable that Jesus tells them after the discussion. A man owns a vineyard. He has a gardener who looks after things. But he comes around periodically to check on production numbers. He wants to know how his business is doing. This time around, he checks on a fig tree planted in the middle of the vineyard. And he sees that there are no figs, just as there were no figs last year and no figs the year before that. And he tells the gardener, cut it down, destroy it. 
Do you see the connection between the previous part of the scripture passage and this? Unless you repent, you will all perish. If the fig tree won't produce figs, then what is the point of keeping it around? Fruitless fruit trees are not the fruit trees that a property owner, a business owner, wants. They are resource drains. They are just sticks in the ground. They are bad for the bottom line. The gardener, however, for whatever reason, isn't quite ready to give up on the fig tree planted in the vineyard. The New Revised Standard Version translation is very delicate about the way it describes the treatment that the gardener recommends for the fruitless fig tree. Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. The King James Version is a bit more plain-spoken. Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig around it and dung it. Although it's the first and only time that I have seen the word dung as a verb, I will dung it. The word dung does show up numerous times as a noun in the Hebrew scriptures. Dung heaps, dung hills, excrement, filth, refuse. Usually it has to do with end result waste. But here in the one reference to dung in the New Testament, it has to do with action toward future possibility. Manure not just as waste, but as agent of growth. And that's because in this text, what is defined as waste isn't what the gardener gathers to mix into the soil around the base of the fruitless tree. The waste, at least according to the vineyard owner, is the tree itself, at least up to that point. After all, what good is a fruit tree that won't bear fruit? That's the position of the owner of the vineyard. What's the point of keeping a fruit tree that bears no fruit? From his perspective, it's a waste of soil in which the tree is planted. It's a waste of the gardener's time, the person who plants and tends. And it's a waste of the vineyard owner's expectations. He counts on the good harvest to keep his business going. And here's a tree that gives nothing. So in such calculations, the dung isn't the waste It's the tree that produces nothing that is the waste. But the owner of the vineyard is not a patient man. The fig tree has had its three years of growing time, and now it's producing time, and there's nothing to show. A waste of time, of soil, of expectation. It doesn't deserve to live, he declares. Now, does that seem right to you? Does it seem fair? Is it too short-sighted? Three years is kind of a long time. Is it harsh? Is it the right measurement? Does the tree have to produce a certain number of figs in a certain amount of time or else be cut down? Is there no other choice? I mean, I understand the position of the vineyard owner. I understand that he's a businessman. It doesn't help him to have to take care of things that don't produce for the business. His business is fruit, and fruit trees that don't bear fruit are not helping him at all. But is everything best measured on the metric of productivity? The fig tree needs to produce so many figs to earn its keep. Is this just a parable about the righteousness of productivity? I don't think so, based on the part of the scripture that came right before the first part of this morning's scripture, which seemed this isn't a parable about productivity. This is a parable about repentance. 
And that means it really must be a parable about changing course and how that happens. And that's why the gardener, who is at the center of the parable, is less concerned with the fig count than with this question. What can I do with this tree to help it fulfill its purpose? If a fig tree is meant to grow grow figs, then what will it take to get it started growing figs? What will it take to get the fig tree growing figs? Will it take more time, aerated soil, protection from pests, more water, more sunshine? Will it take more manure mixed in, more dung? In the parable, the owner kind of feels to me a bit impatient. I know it's three years, but he feels a bit impatient, maybe even small-minded. It's the gardener who's more generous, more visionary, more patient. He's the one who considers the question, what will make the difference? What will it take to get the fig tree to grow figs? But I recognize that if I judge the owner as a bit too impatient, maybe small-minded, then I am likely judging myself. Because when I'm impatient, I can easily forget to ask, what will it take to help the fig tree grow figs? Judge instead of ask. I think that is short-sighted, maybe small-minded, even hard-hearted to judge rather than to ask. So it is important that there are those among us who ask, who act as the gardeners, believing, nurturing, encouraging, mixing in the manure. How else will change? How else will good change come? Think about it. Can the fig tree fix itself? That is, in the story, can the fig tree do better by suddenly producing the figs it's expected to produce? Probably not. The fig tree doesn't decide anything. It cannot replant itself. It cannot water itself. It cannot fertilize itself. To do its best, the fig tree needs a good gardener, someone to pay attention, to care for it, and ultimately to not give up on it, someone to dung it. That doesn't sound very pretty. But the tree needs someone to dung it. Someone to get a big load of manure and mix it into the soil around the trunk and across the roots. The tree needs such help to fulfill its purpose. It needs such help. And that help that it needs may not be the help that it wants, and it may not be so easy, may not be pleasant. It may stink to high heaven. Do you ever get help that stinks to high heaven? It may challenge the old way of doing things or the passivity or cynicism of the tree that hasn't produced fruit and so somehow thinks it can't or doesn't need to produce fruit. The manure, the dung can be unpleasant and necessary and life-giving all at the same time. When you smell manure, what do you think? Do you think, that stinks? Or do you think, 
that means the growing season is about to begin. Typically, in our consideration of stories like these, parables that is, we find ourselves inclined to choose some character in the story with which we can identify. And it's always easy to identify with the hero or the smart person in the story. So maybe in this case, you are ready to identify with the gardener. Visionary, patient, helpful, willing to shovel a little manure into other people's lives as needed. I think maybe instead... What Jesus is offering us is the role of the fruitless fig tree. Powerless in many ways to change our situation, but needing to change. Dependent on the grace of others, but needing more manure mixed into our soil at the base of our trunk. The truth is we are not the heroes. We are those waiting for help. Ready for help, hoping for help. We are those who, with some help, are hoping to turn a corner and maybe produce a fig or two before it's too late. Maybe you don't like to be cast in that role, the role of tree not yet producing fruit, but maybe you and I need to claim it because we are no better than those who Pilate kills or the tower falls on. Jesus reminds us that we are just as close to destruction We are just as needful of purpose and produce. And to produce fruit, we need the gardener's help. We need to be dunged from time to time. We need to be tended, watered, and yes, fertilized, because no matter what the owner of the vineyard might think, every tree might yet live out its treeness. Only if the gardener doesn't give up. Only if the tree is treated right. Fruit trees bear fruit when they are well planted, well watered, well tended, well cared for. A good gardener doesn't blame the trees but seeks to help them out. A self-aware tree, if there is such a thing, doesn't grumble or pity itself for lack of productivity but asks for help. A good gardener knows that caring for your plants may not guarantee an abundant harvest, but it sure does help them towards such hope. So a good gardener is worth everything because she knows what the tree needs and then gives it what it needs. What grace that is. I continue to participate in reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants with the church's church's men's discussion group that meets on Zoom weekly. The author talks often about the interplay of indigenous traditions and nature's processes. In one chapter, she talks about the tradition of wooden basket weaving done with the wood of ash trees. The ash groves are in decline, she reports, and indigenous basket makers wondered whether their over-harvesting might be to blame. So she and a graduate student did a study, and they discovered that, in fact, while there were plenty of old trees as well as seedlings... The saplings, the adolescent trees, were generally in short supply. There were only two places, she writes, where he, her graduate assistant, found an abundance of adolescent trees. One was in the gaps in the forest canopy where disease or windstorm had brought down a few old trees letting light in. Curiously enough, he found that where Dutch elm disease had killed off elms, 
Black ash was replacing them in a balance between loss of one species and gain of another. To make the transition from seedling to tree, the young black ash needed an opening. If they remained in full shade, they would die. She continues, the other place, the second place, where saplings were thriving was actually near communities of basket makers. Where the tradition of black ash basketry was alive and well, so were the trees. So we hypothesize, she says, that the apparent decline in ash trees was not due to over-harvesting, but to under-harvesting. Where communities echoed with the distinctive sounds of axes carefully cutting down selected trees by basket makers, the result was created gaps where light could reach the seedlings and young trees could shoot to the canopy and become adults. In places where the basket makers disappeared or were few, the forest didn't get opened up enough for black ash to flourish. Her conclusion, quote, black ash and basket makers were partners in a symbiosis between harvesters and the harvested. Ash relies on people as people rely on ash. Their fates are linked. Now, you can dismiss an explanation like that as kind of a self-serving understanding of a human nature interaction motivated and guided by human wants and needs. But the way she describes it, it certainly feels as though there is something holy at work when the gardener or the basket maker and the fig tree or the ash tree are bound together in a cycle of life, of purpose, of productivity. That is, when there is fruit produced or traditional baskets made, we recognize that as a sign that something is becoming more right in the world. She quotes an old basket maker who teaches his students how to, make, how to take an ash tree and turn it into a basket. Just think of the tree and all its hard work before you start, he tells his students. It gave its life for this basket, so you know your responsibility. Make something beautiful in return. In the parable, the owner of the vineyard wants productivity and profit. The gardener wants to grow something. What does the fig tree need in order to grow? What do we need in order to fulfill our purpose in the world? in order to contribute to the community, in order to change for the better. May our soil be stirred. May more than a little manure be mixed in. May those who care for us and nurture us tend us with patience for more than three years. May we be fruitful as we are meant to be. May we do less judging and more helping. May we grow and grow. May we live our lives at the thin edge of perishability, but with less fear and more purpose. May some good gardener give attention to our well-being, and may we do the same for others. May we take what we have been given and make something beautiful in return. May it be so. Amen. Amen.